Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of February 26th, 2018. On this week's show, Slate Olympics beat reporter Justin Peters completes the rare guest three-peat as we wrap up the games. Miracurl on ice, Wunder auf ice, plucky Norwegians will cover at least some of it. Justin and I also will talk with NBC commentator Chad Salmella about his outstanding call of the finish of the United States' first ever cross-country gold medal. Finally, I'll be joined by writer Ben Strauss and economist Andy Schwartz to break down the latest in the FBI's investigation into scary, scary college basketball, including allegations of payouts as high as $100,000 to secure players at schools including North Carolina, Michigan State, Kentucky, Arizona, and say it ain't so Duke. Josh Levine, the editorial director of Slate Magazine, the Jesse Diggins to my Keegan Randall, the Jocelyn Lamaru to my Monique Lamaru. He's off this week. But Justin Peters is here. He is the author of The Idealist, Aaron Schwartz, and the Rise of Free Culture on the Internet, and more important, the author of Post After Post of Olympian Greatness on the Games of Pyeong Chang, as Kenny Albert called them, to my endless amusement and annoyance. Welcome back, my friend. You know what? I'm like uh, Adam Rapon. I'm like a witch. You can't kill me. I keep coming back and back and back. So I'm back and I'm happy to be here. You know, we could start by talking about Adam Rapon, but I think we should start by talking about your favorite aspect of these games and possibly what could be your greatest lasting contribution to American culture. I speak of curling, of course, and the men's curling team. They won the gold medal in incredibly exciting fashion. And I know saying incredibly exciting and curling in the same sentence may seem a little bit oxymoronic, but it was really amazing to watch this. So I want to play the clip of the call when the U.S. curling team scored a crazy five in the eighth end against Sweden in the gold medal game to clinch effectively the gold medal. For five and maybe gold for the U.S. Can he get it? He can! Five on the board for Team USA! 
it, it, it was an amazing moment, and it was even made more amazing if you knew a little bit of the backstory and how truly unlikely it was for John Schuster and his entire team to be there at that point. I mean, first of all, that moment where he scored five points with one toss of the hammer and effectively putting the game out of reach for uh, Team Sweden. Yeah, turned um, a 5-5 game into a 10-5 game with two, yeah. with two ends to go. The ends, which is basically an, an inning, inning in, in curling. Uh, and it had been really close up to that point. Um, it was a 5-5 tie, and they'd traded points back and forth in the preceding ends. But at that point, it was absolutely like a moment of redemption for John Schuster. And we toss the word redemption around a lot in sports and especially in the Olympics. But John Schuster was the most hated man in USA curling for a good eight years. Um, he led the team in Vancouver. They didn't do well. He led the team in Sochi and they finished in ninth place to the point where the hashtag Schuster sucks started trending on Twitter. And he was getting all of this vitriol from the very engaged and vocal online curling community. Oh my God. And Twitter uh, curling Twitter is, is, is brutal. It's mean. There was a they verb are. created Schustering to mean screwing up. Um, he was quoted by one newspaper saying, I could read mean tweets for three hours from 2010 and not read the same tweet twice. There's actually a um, Twitter account that is just Schuster Sucks. That's that's the account. And Schuster Sucks was in full force um, at the beginning of these Olympics, tweeting out how much this person hated John Schuster because Schuster in the round robin part of the tournament was horrible. And there, there really is something about curling, though, that either engages you or can piss you off. I mean, the, the, the fact that these are sort of blue-collar dudes who do this part-time, you know, they go to their sheet. It's like bowling, right? It's like a hobby for thousands and thousands of people in the northern Midwest and in Canada. Um, and they don't look like Olympic athletes, you, know, you got one dude, you got Matt Hamilton's got that little porn stash. Um, one of these, you know, one guy owns a liquor store. Schuster worked where? Walmart? Dick's Sporting Goods. Dick's Sporting still does. Goods. The other guy, he like, uh, this is the, like the best part of the story. This is what I love. Uh, so to fill in some like uh, context, after Sochi, uh, Schuster came back to the States and was like, oh, it's never going to happen again. Uh, you know, John Schuster is never going to... Uh, suck that hard at the Olympics again. And USA Curling was like, yep, you're right. Uh, we don't want you involved with USA right. Curling anymore. You're the problem, John Schuster. And Schuster got very sad for a few minutes. And then he was like, well, screw this. I'm going to start my own curling team comprised of other USA Curling rejects. And we're going to train on our own. And we're going to uh, – make it back to the Olympics, like without institutional support. So cue the sort of montage. Now you posited on Slate that this would make a great movie. And before we talk about the why and the why you've explained really, I mean, this is a classic underdog story and they come back, they prove the, the doubters wrong. They prove the haters wrong. They give a big middle finger to the institution and they go on to win the gold at the Olympics. But Justin, there's a lot of competition here. Now, did you know that there have been at least three curling movies 
2014. I'm going to go through them here. Bear with me. (laughs) I'm going to read the blurbs about some of these films. 2014, La Mosa del Pinguino, The Move of the Penguin. Wikipedia says, two precarious workers, a pensioner and an old bully, discover the sport of curling by chance and convinced of their potential, they plan to compete at the 2006 Winter Olympics held in Turin, in which Italy automatically is qualified being the host country. 2011, Curling King, once a great curling star, Trolls Paulson is diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder and banned from competition. But when he learns that his old friend and coach Gordon is on his deathbed, Trolls, heavily medicated, decides to compete again in the hopes of winning money for Gordon to have an operation in the U.S. That is from film about it, as is this synopsis of the 2002 smash hit Men with Brooms. And I think this is your biggest competition, Justin. A witty and clever comedy that follows four longtime curling friends reunited by the last wishes of their recently deceased coach and set out to win the golden broom. Let's listen to a bit of the trailer of Men with Brooms. Chris Cutter has come home to unlikely teammates. I buried dead people. Two complicated sisters. Here, I'll give it to him. Yeah, I'm sure you will. Knock it off, okay? And one last chance for the gold. And the golden broom is underway. Justin, do you think the Schuster story can compete with Men with Brooms? Well, I don't know if we'll be able to get Leslie Nielsen like Men with Brooms had. And I'm pretty sure we won't be able to get the tragically hip who, if I recall correctly, Canadian. cameoed as uh, competing uh, curling squad. Now, in, that would be like, that would be treason if tragically hit. Yeah. Uh, oh, exactly. We're in yeah, a movie no, about that, a U.S. curling It'd be metal. horrible. Yeah. Look, I think we got a chance. Like, sounds like a funny movie. Sounds like mm-hmm. one that was, you know, geared toward Canadian audiences. This is going to be, you know, a heartwarming, you know, broad story. It, it, it's very funny. I got, <laughs> I got an email uh, just this morning from... Um, a person who, you know, grew up down the street from John Schuster. And, you know, she's saying this would be a great movie. You need to um, include a lot of stuff about growing up uh, up north Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And like she says, a Fargo just, element. Yeah, Duluth. Um, it's very much an us versus them uh, with the people in northern Minnesota versus the people um, down in the Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. Um, the which, cities, you know, a, a great dynamic. And what, what I loved about this email is the emailer said, you've got a great story here. There's no need to add any uh, sex, drugs, or alcohol in there just to sell tickets. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. You cast Paul Rudd as John Schuster. Matt Hamilton, the porn stash guy, he responded to a tweet that you made on Twitter about your post and said that he wanted to be played by Danny McBride. I, I, look, I mean, the, these guys seem super into this idea of this, you know, fictional movie that you know, I made up while sitting on my couch. Um, like, I, I say Nick Offerman because Nick Offerman's got like a great mustache. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danny McBride could do it, like for sure. I think a John mullet C- would be helpful in the, yeah, in I mean, the Hamilton look. role, don't you? Hamilton's funny. He yeah. would be funnier if he also had a mullet. Yeah. Like, I, I'm just going to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, the United States' celebration in curling was Canada's humiliation, but that wasn't the only Canadian humiliation, Justin. Women's ice hockey lost to the USA in a shootout. Men's ice hockey lost to Germany 
in the semifinals. And then the Germans almost beat the, the Olympic athletes from Russia in the final. They were 55 seconds away from winning the gold medal. And that would have been Wunder Aufweis. Um, I really felt for Canada. You know, even though they won a shit ton of medals, I think they finished third or second or third in the standings. Um, they lost where it counted, curling and hockey. This is a national embarrassment. Yeah, I, I, you got a feel for them. I mean, they did take the gold in uh, mixed doubles curling. So, True. you know, can't, can't feel too bad for them. They got something. But, you know, mixed doubles curling, there's no history there. This is the first time it's ever been at the Olympics. Uh, you're right. Curling well, and hockey. Salvage, they salvaged bronze in hockey. Yeah, I mean, so, they sure did, but um, bronze ain't gold, you know, and like Canada is accustomed to, you know, being right there for the gold medal in these like um, these events, especially in curling. I mean, they're, they're the best, you know, curling uh, country like ever. You know, the um, commentator on NBC for the curling events, uh, Kevin Martin, whose nickname is the old bear. Um, a little fun fact there, like uh, commonly claimed is the best like curler like ever. So for this country with this rich heritage to, you know, lose both in men's curling and in women's hockey, you know, it's, you know, it's got to hurt. I feel for them. I, I feel bad for them. I don't feel that bad for them. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, athlete reactions. And one of my quadrennial pet peeves is the way the American media, um, overemphasizes results at these games. I mean, these are sports that are crazy fast, crazy precise, determined often by tens, hundredths, or even thousandths of a second that require this slavish devotion to things that are obscure and non-remunerative. Um, and every time somebody says something that approaches candid they get raked over the coals. And in this instance, I mean, there were a few at this Olympics. The most prominent one was the U.S. figure skater, Mariah Nagasu, and she had a terrible individual Olympics. Um, she had a lousy short program, which she followed up by a lousier, um, arguably long program where she didn't even attempt the triple axel. And then afterward, she did what a 24-year-old who devotes her life to this and then ends up having a, a terrible struggle does, which is be candid about how she felt. Like she seemed like she didn't want to, she couldn't wait to get out of there. Basically, you know, she talked about how she wanted to go on dancing with the stars. Cause then I could become a star. She kind of dissed the Canadian woman who also had a terrible long program. And I felt for her. And yet the media reaction was, Oh my God, how dare she? Um, Sports Illustrated called her answers bizarre. And then she had to go do a mea culpa in this long interview with People Magazine of all places, apologizing, apologizing, apologizing. Uh, she was certainly candid in that interview, and I can appreciate that. I mean, look, this is Marianne Nagasu's first and last chance at uh, the Olympics. Wow. She's, she's 24 now. Uh, the odds are against her returning in four years at age 28. You know, she didn't make the team in, you know, 2014. Um, and, you know, it, I feel like her answer, you know, really sort of illuminated just how short a window a lot of these athletes have to capture the world's attention and to effectively profit 
off of the sport to which they've dedicated literally their entire lives. I mean, everything in Marai Nagasi's life was leading up to these two weeks when, you know, people outside of the figure skating community would see her face, would know her name, yeah. would think she's great. And then now it's over and she's going to go back home and, you know, have to reckon with the fact that at 24, you know, she needs to move on to something else. Look, if she had gotten the bronze medal, she would have been over the moon and would have been incredibly gracious. She was being honest. This was a hurt person who failed on a public stage in a sport that that demands of its athletes this sort of slavish perfection um, that you know, you know, curling Twitter's bad. Oh my God. Figure skating Twitter. Holy moly. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, Nathan Chen, the male figure skater who had a, uh, an awful disastrous short program and then redeemed himself with this remarkable six quadruple jump long program. He was completely raked over the coals. Failure. How dare he? Bad representative for America. I mean, that's what bothers me. It's that, that we have this. There's an expectation for how you're supposed to respond when in the face of failure, when someone lets down her guard and responds in a human way, maybe not so gracious, maybe not so humble, um, responds in a human way, though, she gets she gets raked over. I feel like it came across a bit like she was making excuses for um, her, you know, poor performance. I mean, she also mentioned how, like, she had trouble sleeping in the uh, Team USA house and how there was no hot water, like, in the showers. And I'm like, okay, like, that's not why you didn't land, like, the uh, the jumps. You know, that might have been, you know, terrible in the morning. She might not feel as clean as you're used to feeling. But, you know, like, I guarantee a lot of other countries were dealing with that um, issue, like, just as well. Like, you just didn't land the jumps and in the, um, you know, free skate you barely even attempted like the triple axle now i mean granted you did land it in like the the team event and that's a heck of an achievement but you know i feel like it would have been a better look and might have actually upped her chances of getting on the show if if she would have owned it you know say like look that's on me. Yeah. Like, I tried my well, best. But athletes get put in this position where they're expected to say one thing and then they stumble and don't quite know what the right place for honesty is. And they end up, you know, putting their foot in their mouth the way Marina Gassu certainly did. All right. Before we finish up, Justin, I think one more thing to wrap up. the I'd like to wrap it on a positive note. And one thing that I really liked about the media's treatment of athletes in this Olympics was the way that it handled Lindsey Vaughn and Michaela Schifrin. Josh wrote a piece about NBC's coverage, and he noted that in what was likely, almost certainly, her last downhill in an Olympics, Lindsey Vaughn was allowed to, to breathe. The network let the coverage be the coverage. They let the dramatic moment be dramatic without larding too much of the false narrative type of, um, of, of prime time packaging that NBC is often criticized for. And I agree with him there. And I think that the same with Michaela Schiffman, there seemed to be an understanding for the first time in a long time, I felt that these are hair thin margins in these events and that, you know, you, as one skier told me in 2006 at the games, you get to the bottom of the hill, you turn around, you look at the clock, you shrug your shoulders. Yeah, um, I thought their coverage of, you know, Vaughn and Schifrin and frankly, in general of the downhill uh, was was pretty good. 
Um, and I mean, you're totally right. Like this is not the sort of sport where, um, there's a huge margin separating, um, you know, the gold medal from like the eighth place, like finisher. And, um, on the Vaughn thing specifically, Josh's piece, you know, sets us out so well how, you know, they put together this package, you know, preceding her, uh, her final run where it just sort of outlined everything that had happened to her over the past few years, you know, her injury that kept her out of Sochi, uh, her, you know, grandfather, uh, dying and, you know, underlying all of this, the, um, sort of realization that she is aging out of this sport at which she has excelled, uh, for so long. And, you know, it just sort of added, uh, little bit of you know earned drama Mm -hmm. to this uh this one run uh and then they sort of capped it off at the end with this you know really great interview with Vaughn and uh the interview would just let you know Lindsay Vaughn you know speak on her own and in the course of what I think was basically a two and a half minute monologue she starts crying and you know it felt natural and it didn't feel pressured it didn't feel like the interviewer was was trying to, to, to force tears out of Lindsay Vaughn. No, it was, she was, the interviewer was providing a platform for this emotion that Vaughn had, uh, for these emotions to, to come out and provide some sense of, uh, closure to her, you know, decades long Olympic story. And, and I think we, we I also was, more broadly got a much better picture of how the Olympics um, are composed not only of Lindsey Vons and Michaela Schifrin's and Marina Gossus for that matter, but of athletes who are there because they really love what they're doing and they're, that, that, that they, they got recognized this time. Tom Goldman of NPR did a nice piece that recognized this. Uh, 2,952 athletes went to the games, 2,700 or so didn't win any medals. And I think thanks to athletes like the topless Tongan skier, um, and, and sort of the, some nice stories that emerged out of the athletes at the bottom of the standings of this Olympic Games. It felt like, you know, we appreciated the, the, the toil and the effort and the sort of lonely struggles of, of these athletes a lot more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and like the shirtless Tongan was, you know, I turned, I came around to that guy, you know, and I sort of really came to appreciate how, his, you know, visibility and earnestness really, for me, served to underscore just how hard it is to make it to the Olympics, you know, not just uh, in like the United States. It might even be more hard for someone like the Tongan who comes from um, a country where the, yeah, from Tonga. (laughs) Tonga is the country. There is no snow in Tonga. They don't cross country ski. They don't do any of these things. Like for this dude and like, All of the sort of, I mean, there was a Nigerian bobsled team this year. There was a cross-country skier, like, from Mexico. There were all these people who are putting in the work to attend an event that they know they are not only not going to win at, like, they they know they're going to finish in last place. And, like, they come anyway, and, like, they compete well. Most of them do. And they give their best, most of them. Um, and like, it's, it's, it's as fun to watch for me, uh, sometimes as it is to watch the winners. Before we get back to the Olympics and our conversation with Chad Salmella, heads up that on our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Justin Peters is going to stick around and we will run down our 
favorite and least favorite best and worst moments of these winter games. If you want to hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. And if you do, you can get a Slate Plus tote bag plus bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. For me, the moment of the Olympic Games was the finish line magic of Jesse Diggins in the women's cross-country team sprint. Diggins teamed with Keegan Randall and outraced a Swede and a Norwegian to give the United States its first cross-country gold medal ever. Let's listen to the call on NBC. So close for the U.S. on so many occasions, now moving up on the inside, They're in the second place. They're all completely gassed. They've given it everything on the global block, and Steven Nielsen leading Jesse Diggins into the final turn. Can Diggins answer? As the roars rattle around the cross-country stadium in Pyeongchang, Sweden, the U.S. and Norway coming to the line. Here comes Diggins! On Here the outside, Diggins making the play around Sweden, Jesse Diggins to the line, and it is Jesse Diggins delivering a landmark moment that will be etched in U.S. Olympic history, the first ever cross-country gold medal for the U.S. That was Steve Schlanger on the play-by-play, and our next guest, Chad Solmella, with the Do You Believe in Miracles? Yes of this Olympics millennium. Chad, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. All right, so the NBC video of your call is up to like 1.3 million views. But before we get to that, let's talk about the race a little bit. Um, I'm still tingling from listening to the call, and that's going to be part of our conversation too. But this race, I don't want that to get lost in right. the the talk about your exquisite delivery of that exciting finish. Um, This was a pretty remarkable achievement. I mean, the U.S. cross-country has been moving toward this, but to win a gold medal here um, reflects this gradual buildup in this sport. The women have done well before, right? But not, obviously, this well. Right. I mean, I think it's a a confluence of um, a great staff, uh, a bunch of talent, and and just... um, kind of lucky timing of people, right people at the right time. Uh, Keegan Randall carrying the, carrying the flag for the United States in the uh, international effort of skiing almost by herself for a decade, um, started realizing that she wanted to have a team and, and started um, working with the coaching staff to, to bring w- the top women in the country and in North America together to train. And that, you know, that's a decade-old story already, but it takes time. It's, I'm a coach at, of endurance sports, and I always tell people these sports are sports of patience. And, um, you know, but even my patience was getting a little, little wrecked at these games as each race that Jesse Diggins finished fourth or fifth or, or fifth or sixth, um, she wasn't winning medals. And, and I felt like the noose was kind of closing on this day. And I felt like it was now or never or, or now or next or, or four more years. In your call, uh, you mentioned the Klabobakken. Can you mm-hmm. explain for us uh, 
what the Klabobakken is, how it got its name at these Olympics, and just how daunting a feature of the race it was uh, throughout the games, but especially in the team sprint? Yeah, so um, Johannes Hoslot Klabo, it's actually pronounced Klabo, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, we've, we've settled on Klabo for purposes of, of uh, broadcasting. But um, he's a 21-year-old from Norway who won three gold medals here. And he, he kind of took this season by storm, uh, winning seven of the first, I think it was seven of nine of the first World Cup races. At, at 21 years old in the sport, that, that's, in, that's just insane. So everybody knew he had a fast turn of speed and could dr- drop just about anybody on a hill close to the finish. The, the, the name of the hill was being, was being kicked around by people, uh, first of all, the Norwegians and, and other athletes who compete against Klabo knew that he would probably win some medals because of not just the difficulty of the hill. It's not particularly any more difficult than any other hill, but its proximity to the finish line is, is the hill where you can make the move to, to win the race if you're so strong enough. And, um, and as it turned out, Klabo pretty much won three gold medals on that hill. So um, that, that name had already stuck. And, and if you'd been following the broadcast, um, we usually – explain that but in the in the context of the call that's getting played and replayed um that you don't you don't get the background on it but that's essentially how the, the hill got named and the, the bakken part is hill right bakken is hill in norwegian yeah. so it's, they call it the klabo bakken yeah. yep um and now let's talk about your call because mm-hmm. consciously or not chad I mean, you really did etch this indelible moment in Olympics broadcast coverage. And were you prepared as this race was getting tighter and tighter, as these three women were approaching the finish, were you trying to think about what you might say, or are you an emotion adrenaline guy? Cause let's be clear. You're not a professional broadcaster. You are a former biathlete. You are a cross country coach. You're a track coach at a college in Minnesota. Right. Um, you do this part time every four years and sometimes in between. Right. right. I, I don't, I'm not the kind of guy, I try to avoid scripting, even in my head. I, I don't think you get a genuine call that way. Um, and, and honestly, uh, none of that, from the, the clip that you're playing, none of that was even, that was all off, off the cuff, for sure. Um, I didn't even know I was going to get all over Steve in the finishing stretch. I just, I saw what was happening, and I knew how I felt about it. And that's kind of what you got. And let's be clear also for listeners, you're not in uh, Korea. You were in a studio in Stamford, Connecticut calling this. And that's not unusual in sports broadcasting of foreign events. Um, NBC brings a lot of people to the Olympics, but they're also, because of the number of events and the time difference in this case, it was probably economically and logistically in NBC's interest, or they made a decision that way anyway, to leave some, uh, to, to have some events called from, from, uh, from a, a remote studio in the United States. Did that affect how you, uh, you called events? I mean, you, you told me you called 26 races during these Olympics. Does being in a studio feel any different than being in a studio or on, um, uh, on site at, at a games? It, it does. Um, it's definitely more challenging. I think the, the thing about being on site is, especially in these sports where the weather really plays a, a factor, even, even just getting out of a car and walking to the, the, um, the, the commentator positions at an Olympic Games in cross-country skiing or biathlon, you feel the air, you feel the humidity, you feel the dryness, you feel the heat, you feel the cold. 
you know, I'd walk into Sochi every time and I'd pick up a handful of snow if I could, or I'd, I'd feel the track. And, and that would tell me a lot about kind of what the coaches are thinking about for waxing and, and how the course, how their course is going to hold up or break down. But in terms of the call that we're talking about, I don't think being there necessarily would have changed the call all that much. I think it just, it would, for me personally, just getting, smelling and seeing and feeling everything in the atmosphere sets, sets, sets the commentator out better for telling a better story. But um, I think, you know, I think what people are responding to in this, in this call is, it's kind of the raw nature of the emotion and the, and the moment. And I think you can get that just about anywhere just by watching. It must have been, you know, especially emotional for you, Chad, because you've known Jessie Diggins for a very long time, right? I think I read that you've known her since she was about 16 years old. Is that right? I've known her since she started ski racing um, kind of at a higher level. We're not, I wouldn't say we're, we're terribly close, but um, our, our lives are intertwined in, in kind of, um, vague ways, but now they're intertwined a little closer with, with this development. But um, I think the hardest part for me was I was worried as soon as the call was over that uh, this call was done, I was worried in re- instant reflection is that was I cheerleading too much, which is something that we try not to do. And I, and I actually, I like that. I, I listen to um, other nations, like I speak fluent German, and the, and the German commentators in biathlon especially, are very biased to, to the bio. I mean, their, their product is all based on what all the Germans are doing, and they talk about, they can, they talk, the, the commentators talk about we won when the Germans win. And, and I, I don't really like that. I like the way NBC has taught us to call the race. But in context to this historic moment, as soon as the call was over, I was a little bit worried that I was being a bit of a homer. Um, but at the same time, I think it was also, uh, there's a lot of value to it in the context of the historical nature of the call that, uh, I think probably transcends the, that, that, that concern. Now I want to call you out a little bit here, Chad, Mm -hmm. uh, this is your fourth Olympics. You have trotted out the here comes so-and-so in previous exciting, dramatic finishes. I'm going to play a clip here from, uh, Sochi. 2014, this is the end of the 30-kilometer men's skiathlon race. Let's listen to how you called that. Here comes Colonia! Dario Colonia is back! And he's going for the gold of the skiathlon! Can Helder match him? Colonia's got to make it decisive because it's a downhill from right at the top of this hill. Colonia gets the gap! Look at the gap! Two, three seconds right there! Colonia has to get away! They're all running on fumes! That's also a fantastic call, Chad. And in these moments, you know, really, there's only so many things you can sort of conjure. And the idea of an athlete gaining on another athlete is one of the most dramatic things that can happen in a race. Yeah, it's kind of the only thing you have in cross-country skiing in these head, head-to-head competitions. And I was actually getting some, some social media questions as to why I'm not getting excited in, in the first week of these games. And I said... I need a race to get excited about, you know, there, you can't, you can't fake that stuff. And if you do, it's, it's readily evident. So, um, yeah, I mean, as far as calling me out, you know, I, I think that's probably just a lack of skill more than anything. <laughs> just, 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 uh, you know, I can't remember what I said four years ago. I, I do know that I try to avoid the running on fumes because that's become, become kind of my cliche, my cliche moment from Sochi. So when I say they're completely gassed on the Klobobachen, you could, I saw that five seconds before and, and was following up on that thought because they all almost fell just by lack of dexterity down that hill. So, so you've got to find a way to, to explain 
in a very short amount of time how these athletes are feeling. And, and I, I've, I've tried the fumes. I've tried their gas. To, uh, I'll have to find another one, I guess, on the next call. All right, Chad, before we let you go, I wanted to play one more clip. And I don't want to oversell the impact and the lasting nature of your call, the potential lasting nature. And recency bias might play a little bit of a role here. But I think you may stand the test of time sort of the way that this clip has stood the test of time. Ali's trainer right next to me is saying it. You may hear him. Down goes Frazier. Down goes Frazier. Down goes Frazier. The heavyweight champion is taking the mandatory eight count and Foreman is as poised as can be in a neutral corner. That was uh, Howard Cosell with his famous down goes Frazier call. George Foreman knocking down Joe Frazier in 1973. And Chad, that might be a little embarrassing to, to, to draw this comparison, but there is something that works here, and it's that down goes Frazier, and here comes Diggins, scan the same, 1-1-2, one, 1-1-2. One, two, one, one, two. There, mm-hmm. there really is a, there's something emotive about that structure of excitement and and that kind of a call, those words and the way they came out. And it's easy to remember also. And I think simplicity is one of the great virtues of a of a broadcaster calling a dramatic moment. Yeah, I mean, thanks for that. <laughs> we'll see if it holds the test of time. I think for one thing, we're talking about cross-country skiing versus boxing. Sure. I boxing is, has a bigger draw internationally. But um, I, I've noticed that, I mean, you know, I don't do this for a living, but... Um, I've noticed that in the, I've done it for about 15, 20 years, just off and on. And um, when I get too complicated with my thoughts, the call gets worse, uh, especially in dramatic moments. And I think that instinct, call it an intersection of experience and, and, and a situation that had I, had I been a less experienced commentator, I think I could have I come, come across with that call far less effective than I did. And I think um, I had a, the instinct to to go simple and emotional in, in this historical moment. So if, if I never thought of the two, two, one that you just brought up, but it's a good point. I think that simplicity is universal that we can talk about um, the historic nature and try to fit that into the call. But when it really comes down to it is it's, it's an emotional moment. And that's why, that's why people will remember it. I think. And I think the, the other comparison to make, is when you said, yes, 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 it's like the, the orgasm scene in When Harry Met Sally. <laughs> so there's, there's that comparison, too. Yeah, I hadn't heard that one either, but thanks for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Chad Salmella called biathlon, cross-country skiing, and the cross-country skiing portion of Nordic Combined at these Olympic Games for NBC. He is a cross-country and track coach at the College of St. Scholastica in Duluth, Minnesota, in his normal life. Chad, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, I appreciate it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
A lot of bombs dropped over the weekend in the government's big investigation of college basketball. ESPN reported that wiretaps show that Arizona men's basketball coach Sean Miller allegedly brokered a $100,000 payment to a five-star recruit. Yahoo Sports said the feds had connected players at at least 20 Division I programs to cash payments and other inducements, and we are all shocked, shocked. I am joined now by Ben Strauss, the co-author with Joe Sarah of Indentured, the inside story of the rebellion against the NCAA, which is out in paperback this week. Hey, Ben. Hi, Stefan. How are you? I am well. Also with us is sports economist Andy Schwartz. He is a founder of the Historical Basketball League, which is attempting to create a system that would pay college players. We discussed that plan on this program recently. Hey, Andy. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us, uh, both of you. Uh, Ben, the biggest of the big-name basketball programs have been named so far, and the evidence appears to be coming from just one sports agency, so who knows what else is out there. Uh, None of this feels particularly substantive or surprising. I mean, payments like these have been happening for literally as long as there have been college sports, and yet there are issues here. I think you you said it best. This is uh, Rick's Casino. We are shocked, shocked that uh, college basketball players are being paid under the table here. You want to think about this uh, historically. Let's you know think about the paragon of uh, virtue in college sports. John Wooden, the uh, coach of the great UCLA teams in the 60s and 70s, he himself had a uh, fixer who was uh, paying players, you know, getting them jobs, paying for their abortions in certain cases. Um, so the idea that that you know we're you know sitting on a bed of pure white snow in uh, the 21st century is uh, you know patently absurd. And and what's interesting about this is that um, why we're paying attention is we have the names, we have the receipts, we have the dates um, in a way that we haven't before. Right. And Andy, the, you know, the overlying question here is whether or not the FBI should be in the business of criminalizing athlete recruitment. And to me, that seems tenuous at best. The rationale seems to be that because players who took money or may have taken money or had a lunch paid for broke NCAA rules, therefore they defrauded the universities when they then accepted scholarships. But even if we say, all right, let the FBI go ahead and do that, at least what we're seeing here, it seems seems to me, is that an acknowledgement that there is a market for college basketball recruits and college basketball players once they get to universities? Of course there is. Um, the, the reason that they need to have a cap on how much athletes can get is because without the cap, they would get more. You don't need uh, to enforce uh, amateurism in Little League, as an example, because there's really nobody out there with a market for Little League. Yeah, and and the numbers that are getting thrown around here, I mean, the 100 grand seems to be the, 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 the high end right now, as far as we know, but at least, hey, we know what some college coaches think uh, a, a top recruit is worth. Um, and then and if we drill down a little farther, you know, you, you talk about what this unmasks, it's the NCAA's earnest lies about amateurism. Um, The NCAA is a monopsony and it facilitates a black market because they won't pay players. Um, 
Ben, you know, the numbers that, that came out on this Yahoo spreadsheet that they found, I mean, they're sort of piddly ass. I mean, it's like $73,000 in loans for one guy, 9500 in payments over another player's entire college career. I mean, there were paragraphs spent discussing whether a player got a free lunch. This is kind of ridiculous. If this is all there is, I don't know where this goes. Yeah, I think the idea that we're talking about whether uh, these big-time recruits going to play for programs that are generating over $100 million in revenue, where their coaches are making between 5 and $10 million, whether they got a free lunch, you know, what are we doing here? Um, the one thing that, that I would say is, is your reaction you know, my reaction, Andy's reaction is is shared, I think, more widely among, you know, at least the sports media today than it would have been 10 years ago. You know, Barry Pacheski wrote a great piece at Deadspin. Um, Andy Staples at Sports Illustrated. Jay Billis, as he always um, is, is on Twitter and Gary Parish and CBS. The reaction to this isn't oh my God, they got a free lunch. The reaction is structurally, this is what we've created. Yeah, except that the the driving force here, the news breaks, the leaks from the investigation, you know, give the impression that Yahoo and the reporters at Yahoo have, who have reported these kinds of stories before are serving as the enforcement arm of the NCAA. And this allows the NCAA to go back up on its sanctimonious high horse and and condemn the, the the these apparent violations. Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA, said in a statement over the weekend: "These allegations, if true, point to systematic failures that must be fixed and fixed now if we want college sports in America. Simply put, people who engage in this kind of behavior have no place in college sports. They are an affront to all those who play by the rules." Come yeah, on, I think in a different era, people would have, you know, eaten that bullshit up with a spoon. And I think, you know, today, I, I don't think, I think the sports media in particular is sort of like, you know, we're not going to look at the kid who, you know, maybe took $400, right? We're, we're, we live in a, a world that's a little more reality-based than we did in, in previous eras with all the reporting about the NCAA, with all the money sloshing around college sports. It's, it's, a, it's a more than $10 billion industry, right? This is NFL-level money. And so the reaction, um, what it changes, you know, remains to be seen. But I do think the reaction uh, of reporters in this world is... Um, a market change than what we would have seen. But Andy, how do you get at um, the the system? I mean, you've got people like Mark Emmert and and university presidents that want to continue to defend the status quo and pretend that this is a big big news break. Yeah, and it's it's worse than that. You've got uh, a lobbying group called Lead One that's out there working actively to get Congress to grant the NCAA an antitrust exemption so that they never have to face a challenge again in the name of, among other things, trying to protect the, the transfer of wealth from men's basketball and football players to the Olympic team. Uh, that's their current sort of spin, is that the, the success of the United States and the Olympics hinges critically on extracting wealth from people on Pell Grants. So, so what happens then, Andy? I mean, where, where do you see the potential for genuine progress out of this investigation because to me the only way this ends up mattering is not if you know a handful of assistant coaches and a few sneaker company flunkies get charged with you know some minor crime it's that if it 
create if there's some salutary effect, if there's a way to to get at the core of the problem here. Um, yeah, well, so you know, there's ongoing litigation, some of which I have done some consulting on, and it's possible that that a court is willing to say, look. I see all this evidence out here that it's happening and your argument that if this were to happen above the table, no one would watch rings a little hollow given what we're about to see in March when everyone knows that a whole bunch of the athletes who allegedly received money or whose family members received money, et cetera, played and everybody still watched. So that's possible. Um, but the courts have seen, you know, I think this is true. Generally, the courts have lagged behind where, the sports writers and the and the fans who are like, what's the big deal? Are they they have paid more deference to that NCAA argument, and that's one of the reasons why after the end of the O'Bannon case and at the end after the NLRB decided not to act on the Northwestern athletes, that I started circulating my idea about forming a rival competitor to the NCAA that would bring all the good things of college basketball, like college and basketball but leave out the, the amateurism. Right. And, and, and the, the bind that these universities are going to be put in now is going to be embarrassing. I mean, already we saw over the weekend schools being forced to make these statements, denying involvement. DeAndre Ayton, the Arizona player who allegedly was linked to this $100,000 payment through Sean Miller, he played. His family denied that he got any money. The Arizona Board of Regents had held an emergency meeting. Shaq's kid withdrew his commitment to Arizona. Michigan State star Miles Bridges, who was named for taking some money, was said he was cleared by the NCAA to keep playing. And coaches all came out and said what coaches do. And let's, let's listen to a, a montage that ESPN put together of Mike Krzyzewski and Mark Turgeon and a few other uh, prominent NCAA coaches whose schools were named in some of these reports. It's a horrible time for the game. But the game has begged. It's been on its knees begging for change. Those accusations are true. That's certainly not the way college basketball work, should work. And, and there's so many of us doing it the right way. There's so many of us. It's really a travesty how um, people have treated our game. And um, it's, it's, really, it's really sad that, that we have all these situations. And, and there's more of it out there. Um, those of us in the profession know it. Here's what I know. Allegations, until somebody tells me what uh, Kyle Kuzma supposedly did, he's not guilty in my mind. We, we, we have, a, I think, a long haul ahead of us as a sport <clears throat> to figure out what the right thing is to do moving forward. There is no easy answer. Uh, there is no quick fix. The last one was uh, Texas coach Shaka Smart. No easy answers, no easy fix. I mean, that was like a string of platitudes that, uh, yeah. that sort of beggars belief. Um, I, I have an easy answer. Yeah which is put on the sport like every other sport in America where you let talented athletes negotiate for what they're worth and you take into account whatever supposed distaste the fan base has for high salaries when you set that salary and you let the market set the rate. It's not that hard. It's the same way that coaches get paid and, and none of them think it's a disgrace to the game or not the way that college sports is supposed to be, that they're, they're all, you know, they're all in the highest tax bracket. 
And this all just makes them look so bad. I mean, every one of those answers was pure BS. It was pure high horse sanctimony. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, there's a Kool-Aid drinking sort of cult that you get inculcated into. And it's so, sort of the same way that you can, if you, know, if you were to raise your hand every time someone said student athlete during a talk like that, and just keep getting their attention. Eventually, they would recognize that they aren't even thinking when they say things like that. It's it's instinct at this point. Well, Stefan, you want to know what is going to happen next. And so Andy has a historical basketball league. There's uh, Don Yee, who is Tom Brady's agent, um, is working on a you know competitive football league that would you know have college aged kids um, come in and play as a you know an alternative to college football. And the NCA has its own blue ribbon panel that they have uh, set up, headed by. Condi Rice. But the most likely thing, and, and this is sort of unfortunate, is what, I would, is what I would say is that when the new NBA collective bargaining agreement comes up, I think it's 2020 or 2021, they are going to get rid of the one and done rule, which everybody, you know, from college coaches to, to even Mark Emmett himself has said, you know, this is uh, you know, a detriment to college basketball. This is creating problems with people who don't want to be in college coming here and taking money and not being real students. You can look at Ben Simmons, you know, in the documentary he did, he's in Philadelphia now. Um, but they're going to get rid of the one and done rule and um, suggest that this is, you know, the big cleansing that college basketball needs. Um, and, you know, that will protect them and inoculate them from, you know, an Olympic model, you know, third party uh, sponsors, shoe companies, agents, whoever, you know, providing money from, uh, for these athletes, but also, um, you know, they'll fight to their deathbed to, to actually fight or to actually um, make sure that there are no salaries paid. The NCAA will. The NCAA will. The schools will, too. And remember, we, we, we sort of um, get confused a little bit between right. the NCAA versus the schools. The schools are the NCAA. Right. The university the schools, presidents who decide. The presidents, the ADs, the coaches, these are the people who vote on NCAA rules. And so this idea that... Um, you know, the president of Purdue wrote a scathing op-ed in the Washington Post a few weeks ago about how the NCAA needs to change. Well, he is the NCAA. These schools are the NCAA, and they will fight, you know, until their very last breath to make sure that uh, these athletes don't get paid. So, Andy, what does it take then? I mean, if, with this trickle-down of information from the feds and of, of these what, you know, you might consider petty offenses that don't rise above these, uh, you know, uh, NCA rules violations. Is that enough? I mean, is there enough drip, drip, drip that at some point the dam um, becomes unsustainable, that it breaks? Well, I guess um, it might depend sort of on your worldview. The way that Ben described the, the solution that the NCAA wants is for them to be uh, freed from the one and done rule, which I should mention in previous iterations of, of the one-and-done rule, they went to court with amicus briefs saying that if there weren't a one-and-done rule or a three-and-done rule in football, that college sports would die. Right. So this is a new religion that they found on this one. But <laughs> yes. um, um, I think that that misses the point. If you think about it, how many one-and-dones are there in a given year? Fifteen? Right. Are there even that many? Some years, probably not. 10, 15. Yeah, don't misunderstand me that this would be a good solution. They're going to yeah. put it forward as a solution. <laughs> yeah, don't misunderstand me that, that I think that this would be a good idea. But I do think that this will be sort of the salve that they put on this gaping wound. Oh, and Andy, that's not, oh, the, way, that's not the way markets work, right? Andy, if you take out the top 10 players a year anyway, 
there are going to be 10 other players who will then rise up to be one through 10 that will be in demand for Duke and Kentucky and North Carolina and Michigan State and all of the other top programs. Um, sure, but the, the, you know, the, the marginal revenue value of the 11th guy is probably less than the first guy, so the market price will be less. I think that there's this view, and it's perpetuated by the NCAA, that only the people who make the NBA and only the first-round draft choices have, have any value, value when they're in college. And that's, that's just false. So here's an example I'll give you real quick. Um, from 1976 to 2014, there was a cap that didn't allow athletes to get cash to cover their living expenses while on campus. And as part of the O'Bannon process, that cap was raised. So now athletes can get 2000 to 5000 And the arguments were like, well, no one's worth anything more than they're getting now. So this is only going to affect a handful of people. In the recent settlement that was announced about this 250, 260 schools provided evidence to the court that they had provided at least one athlete with some of this money. So it, it went, if you think about it, the 260th college basketball team in division one is not hiring NBA talent. They are, they are bringing in people who probably don't even play in Europe or Australia or, or China after college. And yet they felt the competitive need to provide more compensation once they could. Right. And so that's, that's the thing. It's pervasive. And, you know, if the, if the courts aren't going to remedy it, if, if the, the federal government, either through the labor law or through just legislation, isn't going to remedy it, then, you know, then it's up to folks. It's, it's LeVar Ball. It's, it's the HBL. And what we're trying to do, it's Don Yee. The, the way that you beat a price-fixing cartel is you offer more compensation to the best talent, and then you provide a better product to consumers. In the very short term, we're going to see a lot of squirming over the next two months. Uh, Jeremy Wu at Sports Illustrated noted that uh, schools are clearing players who have been named here really quickly. USC and Auburn held out players uh, all season who were named back in the fall. USC let a player play over, over the weekend, even though he was named. I'm wondering, do schools think that the FBI doesn't have good evidence do they think that the NCAA can't possibly kick out everybody at the same time? Um, or do they think that this is all going to get burned down and everyone's going to get punished? So what the hell? Let's just let everybody play and pretend that there's no problem here. I think it's number two. Uh you're right. I think in, in Ben Mathis Lilly's piece, he mentioned that 11 of the 16 teams that are predicted to go to the Sweet 16 this year have been implicated in some way uh, in this. If, if you don't have the top 11 schools, there's no March Madness tournament. And I think schools have looked at this and said, you know, there's almost a get out of jail free card here. Um, they can't punish all of us. And so if, if Ben is right, that's a huge statement about what the market is, which is that the the value of this upcoming tournament without these alleged professional players is lower than it, when it, keeping it clean is worth less money than allowing a whole a whole tier of athletes who have allegedly received money to play and that's really that's that's the you know what the economists that's what i say is the truth which is that there's never been a market where Keeping the talent poor has been a demand driver. There are some markets like a fair trade coffee or um, something like that where paying the, paying the workers well drives demand. But there's never been a market where um, 
by raising wages, you've lowered demand for the product. Nor has there ever been a fixed definition of amateurism. It changed in the 1920s. It changed in the 1950s in terms of allowing scholarships. Those used to be um, against the rules to give a player a scholarship. Used to be against uh, the rules to give a player room and board. And so, you know, in the history of college sports, the definition of amateurism has changed over and over again. And it will almost certainly continue to change. Andy Schwartz is an economist. He's the founder of the Historical Basketball League. Andy, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. And Ben Strauss, the co-author with Joan O'Sara of Indentured, the inside story of the rebellion against the NCAA. It is out in paperback this week. Go buy it. Ben, thanks. Always a pleasure, Stefan. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Ball. One After Ball, just me. Uh, in the bonus segment with Justin Peters, we're going to talk about Esther Ledechka winning gold in two separate events which uh, reminded our intern, Jason, that in the past, in the Olympics, between 1912 and 1948, the Olympics gave out medals in art. They had art competitions, architecture, literature, music, painting, and sculpture. Somebody did win gold in an art and a regular competition. Not the same Olympics, though. Not like Esther Ledechka. We'll get to that. But I want to honor John Copley of Britain. He won silver in the 1948 engravings and etchings competition in the Olympics. He was 73 years old. He's the oldest Olympic medalist. So this is my John Copley. We taped all of the Olympic stuff on the show on Sunday, which gave me a day to think about what we neglected to mention. Justin and I, as Slate Plus members will discover, forgot about Chloe Kim, whose performance Feels like it took place a thousand sports news cycles ago. We didn't mention that four years after the Olympics were held in anti-gay Russia, American freestyle skier Gus Kenworthy and figure skater Adam Rippon embraced their roles as the first out gay U.S. Winter Olympians and what that's meant for their careers and their lives. Go read Chuck Culpepper's interview with the two of them in the Washington Post. We didn't get into how the American women won their ice hockey gold medal months after threatening a walkout over their shoddy pay and won better pay, or how crazy it was that Germany almost won in men's hockey despite the Russians gaming the NHL boycott of the Olympics to all but guarantee gold. And we neglected to get into the internet obsession with whether the Canadian pairs figure skaters are pairing or not. We also didn't get into some of the things that piss me off and should piss you off about the Olympics now and forever. Part of what makes the games feel capital I important is the very self-importance that makes them so disreputable to begin with. The bloated 17-day schedule, the billions of dollars in spending, the disposable venues, in this case, a stadium that costs $200 million and will be used four times and then get raised. The IOC put these Olympics in a nuclear hot zone in the middle of nowhere, quote, amid dead dry brown hills and farmers fields, a three hour drive from Seoul 
end quote, the Canadian columnist Bruce Arthur wrote in a must-read wrap-up of the games. So it was no wonder that most events were sparsely attended. On the ground, it was an Olympics, Bruce wrote, without heart. But skate past the athletes, and the Olympics almost never have heart. The sportocrats and the politicians always find a way to fuck things up, to intrude. This time, among other things, it was the North Korean cheerleaders and the IOC caving to Russia's state-sponsored doping and Ivanka fucking Trump showing up. Gus Kenworthy tweeted from the closing ceremony about how proud he was of his fellow athletes who, quote, worked so hard to make it to the Olympics and have the opportunity to walk in the closing ceremony. Well, everyone except Ivanka. Honestly, the fuck, Kenworthy wrote TF, the fuck is she doing here? Next time, it'll be some other unwelcome celebrity turning the camera on herself. But without the sportocratic overlay and the historical arrogance, without the forced overspending and the public corruption and political exploitation, the Olympics, of course, wouldn't be the Olympics. All of the garbage is what makes what the athletes do make us feel good about what we're watching, to pretend for a minute that whether some teenager lands a snowboarding trick somehow really matters beyond that it's amazing. At the end of the 2006 Olympics in Turin, I talked to the speed skater Joey Cheek in the Athletes Village, and he said something that I think about during every games. For three years and nine months, he told me, no one cares about what I do. I don't do it for you guys. I do it because I love competing. I love the sport. I love racing. Not for the sensationalism and that stuff. Not because NBC puts this on and makes us cry. The Olympics work in spite of themselves and also because. The nonsense is essential to the entire proposition. There was a lot of nonsense this time around, some of it new and some of it retread. I mean, they were trying to call them the Peace Olympics, for fuck's sake. And maybe I'm kidding myself, but I think what Bruce Arthur called a lack of heart was a good thing. The political displays were so preposterous and the characters so loathsome that the bullshit was rendered nearly irrelevant. The competitors helped a lot. They were so woke and candid and delivered so many fantastic sports moments that they redirected the focus elsewhere, where it belongs always, onto themselves, crazy ridiculous athletes doing crazy ridiculous things. That's our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Our intern is Jason Rosenzweig. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.